So, I don't know how many of you uh, picked up, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me, which isn't a very Canadian uh, thing to say. Um, we're going to look at a passage which is very offensive to many Christians, uh, many uh, non-Christians in Canada. And uh, because it's a, a text which is very offensive to people, it uh, ends up often meaning that we don't really want to look at it or sort of grasp it or hold it tight to ourselves because we're worried a little bit. Well, sort of the, the fact that Canadians in general or many of our co-workers, our neighbors would find it offensive uh, means it can often be a passage that we become at least a tiny bit ashamed about. And so we're going to look uh, at this text, which is uh, sort of offensive to many Christians today. Uh, actually, some of you might have, uh, some of you, if you've been to funerals, a part of this text is a very uh, popular uh, text at funerals. Uh, and I know I've been at funerals where they read the bit of the passage just up before the part which is offensive, and they stop, and they spend a long time on the part that everybody likes the sound of, but they never let anybody know, especially if there's no Bibles present in the room, the offensive bit uh, that they stop just short of. And uh, so we're going to look at it, and if you uh, have your Bibles, it's uh, John chapter 14, uh, verse 1 and following. John chapter 14, <clears throat> verse 1 and following. And uh, uh, just as we're sort of finding that text in our Bibles, uh, there are four ancient biographies of Jesus, uh, which are based on eyewitness accounts, either written by eyewitnesses or based on eyewitness accounts, and this is one of the four. Uh, and uh, the way John has chosen to tell his biography, write his biography of Jesus, he puts the seven miracles sort of all, he puts seven significant miracles all together, uh, and then he takes a, a long time sharing the private teaching of Jesus with his disciples. And what's just happened before this, um, uh, they've, had a, a, uh, they've had a meal together, Jesus has washed the disciples' feet, uh, Judas has left to go and betray Jesus, and so even as Jesus is speaking, Judas is on his way to betray uh, Jesus. Um, he knows that Jesus will end up, <clears throat> excuse me, in the Garden of Gethsemane, and Judas is going to get the soldiers and others uh, and bring them to the Garden of Gethsemane so they can capture Jesus. Jesus is predicted in every one of the biographies. Jesus predicts that he's going to be um, betrayed, that he's going to die on a cross, and he also predicts that he's going to rise from the dead. And so Jesus is talking to the disciples, mindful of the fact that uh, events are in motion. Uh, Judas is left. And, um, and Jesus has shocked his disciples. He's troubled them because he's told them, just before this, he's told them three things. He's told them that he's going to go somewhere that they can't come. So he's going to leave them. He's going to leave, go somewhere they cannot come. He's told them that somebody's going to betray him. And he's told them that Peter, clearly one of the leaders, is actually going to deny Jesus three times before the next day has even really begun. And so they're shocked by all of this. And that's the context where we catch up in verse 1. And Jesus says, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. Now just sort of pause there for a second. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. Um, Jesus is on one hand, <clears throat> excuse me, speaking directly to the disciples who are very, very deeply troubled that uh, Jesus is going to leave them, that they can't come. And um, 
and this whole thing of betrayal and this whole thing of, um, of Peter's denying them. They, for the moment, have just forgotten his prophecies about the fact that he's going to die on a cross and rise from the dead, but they're very deeply troubled. And so on one hand, what we see here is this wonderful thing of Jesus talking directly to his disciples. But it's also something that's very wonderful for us, because we as Christians believe that Jesus looks throughout the down the ages and throughout the years, and he's not just speaking. When he says, let not your heart be troubled, uh, he's not just speaking to the disciples, he's speaking to you and me. That's part of the Christian hope. Um, you know, if you think about it, one of the things that unites uh, rich and poor, Democrat and Republican, conservative and liberal, genius and those who are far from being geniuses, rich and poor, African, Asian, uh, European, North American, South American, one of the things that unites all human beings is that they have seasons of trouble. Being troubled is part of the human condition. So Jesus, when he's saying this, is speaking to the human condition. He's speaking to every one of us here. In fact, there might very well be some people who are here that are having a very, very hard time listening to anything I say uh, because you're very deeply troubled about school or a romantic relationship or money or who knows what it is, health, uh, but you're very deeply troubled. And Jesus is speaking directly to you and me because we all have troubles. Every single one <laughs> have times when we're deeply troubled. And so just listen to it again. He says, you know, it isn't as if Jesus says, you should be ashamed that you have troubles. <laughs> it's not as if he's saying, if you know, uh, you're a bad person because you have trouble. He knows the human condition. He knows that when he says, let not your heart be troubled, and then the following things he's going to be addressing, he knows that he's speaking to something perennial in the human condition that human beings have troubled hearts and troubled minds and troubled consciences and troubled bodies. So Jesus says, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. And he doesn't just say that. He goes on, verse 2. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. Now, just sort of pause there for a second. Um, the word which is translated as rooms, in my father's house are many rooms. It's a perfectly good translation. But what it, it, it means more literally is a dwelling place. And what Jesus is saying is that the way that Christians are to understand the new heaven and the new earth, is that in the new heaven and the new earth, when we die in Jesus, well, we don't go to a disembodied state. We go to a place where we'll dwell. We'll go, literally, we will go to our true home. And it isn't just that we sort of will get cast out into a new world that's like a type of a wilderness and we're going to be all by ourselves. But Jesus compares the new heaven and the new earth to be in a place where God dwells in something like Buckingham Palace, but with also, also lots and lots of other properties and, and, uh, and guest houses and places to live. And when you and I go there, we go to a place where we can dwell, where we are home. You know, for some of us, um, you live in very, very tiny apartments and you, you look forward to the day where you can have a really, really big place and, and Jesus will prepare a place that's just exactly what you need to be truly home. 
I don't know what it'll be like for me. I, I love books. I have to get rid of books because I get so many books and there's only so much room in the house. I'm just guessing I will have lots and lots of rooms for books. <laughs> and, and, but for some people, what they want is just something cozy. They want something small, something manageable. And, and whatever it is, there's going to be enough room and it will be a place where you will dwell and a place where you will feel home. You are home. And it's a place that's prepared for you. It's not a place that, like, you go and, and then you get there, you know, you go to another city and you maybe you, you've gone Airbnb and then, you know, you have to go out and you have to buy some food and you have to buy this and you have to buy that and, and just sort of to make your, it's when you go, like, in my case, the dark roast coffee will be there with the beans and the grinder and the French press and, uh, and it'll be just the dark roast beans that I like. They're all prepared for me. And, uh, and there'll be lots of freshly baked scones that just came out of the oven, uh, some with blueberries, some with white chocolate, and in the new heaven and the new earth, I'll be able to eat as many scones as I want with my coffee and not have to worry about getting fat uh, or having anything that's going to clog my arteries, because nothing like that will happen in the new earth, new heaven and the new earth. But we go to a place where, where Jesus himself has prepared for us a place to dwell, our true home, and he's prepared it not just for a generic male or a generic female or a generic old person or a generic young person, but for you. For you. For you. And we'll be with many other people and with our Father in heaven. And you can see why this text is preached at funerals. But we have to remember that John is writing a biography. He's not writing some series of uh, little tiny pithy lessons for people. He's recounting what actually happened in the upper room. And and what happens in the upper room is well well shown in the next verse because remember, John is writing this and, and the disciples, it's before the capture of Jesus, it's before he dies on the cross, it's before he rises from the dead and appears to them. And so they're confused. And so Jesus in verse 4 says, uh, and you know the way to where I am going. He says, and you know the way to where I am going. And Thomas, remember Thomas, Thomas, he's, he's all confused. Um, one of the things which is so remarkable about all of the four ancient biographies of Jesus based on eyewitness accounts is it shows that in every case, nobody expected Jesus to die on the cross other than the enemies who were plotting it. And absolutely nobody thought he'd rise from the dead. Absolutely nobody thought he would rise from the dead. Not his mother, not his closest disciples, even though he predict, told them it was going to happen, even though he predicted it, nobody expected it. And so, and if you think about it, <clears throat> from Thomas's point of view, Thomas has seen an eyewitness miracles. He, he would say to himself, whenever he hears Jesus speaking, he, he would be saying, Okay, well, I don't know what entirely this guy, what he means, but I mean, surely somebody who could turn water into wine, surely somebody who can walk on water, surely somebody who by a mere word of command can stop a storm on the Sea of Galilee, surely someone who can take a few loaves and fish and feed 5,000 men, surely someone who can heal people at great distances just by a word of his command, surely someone who is able to take a man who has never seen in his entire life, his eyes completely and utterly don't work, and he can make him see. Surely a man who can come to a person who's been in the grave, 
has, has been, you know, embalmed in the grave for four days and make him alive, surely a man like this will not die by crucifixion. I mean, we would have probably felt the same thing. Like, that's just crazy. How on earth could that possibly happen? How on earth could a man who's able to do such spectacular, miraculous acts, how on earth could he possibly be dying? And so Thomas is just completely and utterly puzzled. Jesus has said he's going to leave them. He's going somewhere where they can't go. And this makes no sense to Thomas because he thinks, well, Jesus, if you're going to walk, I can walk as far as you. And if you're going to get on a boat, I can get on the boat as well. And and if you're going to go on a horse, I can go on. Like, I'll run along beside you. And and I, and I so Thomas doesn't understand, and he, he doesn't understand what's going on about this betrayal and, and why it is that Jesus isn't going to be around and that Peter's going to deny Jesus three times before the sun rises the next day. And so Thomas says, and John records what exactly Thomas says to Jesus in the upper room. John, Thomas says in verse 5, Lord, we... <laughs> We do not know where you're going. We do not know where you're going. How can we know the way? It's so wonderful that these biographies capture this, capture these things. It doesn't, the biographies aren't written so John can make himself look good or he can make his buddies look good. John just wants to record what really happened. And so Jesus says this very famous line, which is so troubling today to so many Canadians, would be troubling to Canadians. If I was to organize a Bible study at the, at the Starbucks, one of the Starbucks that I go to and got the baristas that I've talked to and, and I was to have them read this passage, I could, ju- you can just imagine the chill that would come in the circle when I say, Jesus said to him, I am the way. I am the way and the truth and the life, no one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Um, Andrew, could you just put up the the first point, please? Um, You know, if there's one thing that's going to happen in this sermon, if all you get is this um, I am unashamed of this text. I believe it 100%, and I want to believe it 300%, 1,000%. And if all I get is, is to encourage and exhort you to be unashamed of this text, then I have done my job this morning before God and before you. <laughs> even, if it, even, uh, if, um, even if it's such a troublesome text to Canadians... So you see, some people might now at this point in time, maybe what happened if I did organize such a Bible study amongst people who thought, up until I said this, that I believe it 100%, they thought, I thought George was a nice guy, now I'm not so sure. I thought he was sort of a thoughtful guy, now I'm not so sure. I thought he was a kind guy, now I'm not so sure. I thought he was a gentle guy, now I'm not so sure. When I see that he believes something as offensive as this. And so maybe they would say, maybe you would say, well, you know, maybe there's something in the original language that takes some of the sting off of this. I've said that to you before when we've talked to member a few weeks ago about hating 
uh, somebody and I said that it's an idiom. That's in other words, it's an expression which literally means that, but it's an idiom. It, it doesn't mean the literal thing. It means something like this. And maybe some of you will say, well, maybe in the original language there's an idiom there which we're missing. But I can tell you this right now that in the original language, this is a perfectly accurate translation of the original language and it is not an idiom. Jesus says these very words and he says it with conviction and he says it to comfort his disciples and to comfort you and me who are troubled. He says these things. It's not an idiom. And then maybe some of us could say, well, you know, that's okay. So Jesus said that, but you know, he doesn't know all of the things like we know today. Um, we know a lot more about religions and we know a lot more about other different ways of living. And maybe this just reflects Jesus's partial knowledge you know, because he lived a long time ago and he didn't have the internet, he couldn't just ask Google a question, he couldn't say, Siri, you know, tell me about, are there other religions in the world? No, that's not going on as well. Um, Jesus might not have had Google, <clears throat> but he knew that there were, I mean, he was in Jerusalem, which was occupied, he was in Israel, which was occupied by the Roman, by the Roman army. <clears throat> And most of the Roman army weren't made up by Romans, but made up by people that they'd conquered from all over the empire. And so if there's one thing that Jesus would have known on a daily way is that there, in fact, that there were lots of different gods and goddesses and lots of people who believed it 100%. So it wasn't as if he said this because he just didn't know that there were other religions. He knew there were other religions. In fact, he knows he's going to be tried by a man the next day who was not Jewish, who believed in many, many gods and goddesses, and he knew he was going to be tried by that. And then some of you might say, well, okay, well, <clears throat> maybe Jesus sort of knew that, but maybe it wasn't offensive then. Well, that's not true either. It was just as offensive then. In fact, in some ways it might have been, well, maybe, I don't know if we can say it was more offensive, but it was just as equally offensive. In fact, Jesus offended Jewish people and every pagan, if they would have heard it. I don't know if you know this, but uh, in the first couple of centuries after the Christian faith erupts onto the scene, many people in Roman society thought that Christians were atheists. It's an odd thing, but they actually thought that Christians were atheists. Why? Because Christians did not believe in any of the gods. Any of the gods. And to not believe in any of the gods meant you were an atheist. That's actually what many people of the contemporaries of the early Christians thought. And so Jesus knew that he was being offensive to the Romans and to the Greeks, to the different gods, and he was being offensive to the Jewish people because he doesn't say that the way that you have to follow is the way of Moses, that the truth is found in the law. He says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So... How is it that we can comfortably believe something like this, surrounded by a sea of opinion that thinks it's wrong and offensive? Well, let's just take a moment to think about this for a second. And this is going to be, a, if, if you're here as a guest, or you're really struggling with this whole thing, or you've come to the point that you can be a Christian, you believe without believing this, I want to say that most of the reaction to it, of finding it untenable, is at the level of the emotions and the level of the imagination, but not of reason. 
Now, I know I've been a little bit hard by saying that, but I think it's actually very, very true, that if you actually just pause for a second and sort of decouple, take away our emotional responses to it, and just take away what often goes with the emotions, which is how our imagination and our affections work, and you just look at this as an idea, you'll see that at the level of reason, it actually makes a lot of a lot of sense. Um, you see, one of the things for most Canadians when they think of religion or when they think of spirituality, and generally, of course, you know, religion is bad, spirituality is good. Uh, but if we think of a person who's being spiritual, and Jesus is a spiritual person, and he's saying something like this, for most Canadians, when we talk about spirituality and religion, we're not talking about something which is real. Now, we're talking about something which is really important to us, and we're talking about something which is very personal, and, and we're talking about something which is, in fact, so deeply personal that it's offensive to say that something which is deeply personal and important to them is somehow wrong. But it is, it is at the end of the day, something which is, is, is we don't really believe it's real in the same way that if you got your visa bill, your next visa bill, and there's $3,000 of expenses that you know, charges that you know you didn't make, you would immediately get on the phone and you would be on the phone and you would be doing everything in your power to, to make sure that the visa people understand you did not spend that $3,000, your card's been compromised, because what you see in a visa bill is real. It is so real that you will lose sleep over it, you will have to control, some of us will have to control ourselves saying very naughty words um, and, and, and yelling and screaming and doing all sorts of things because we believe a visa bill is really, 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 really real. But we don't think that about religion in Canada, which is why if somebody tells us that they're going to have smudges or going to a sweetgrass ceremony, we don't really think that they believe that the entire world is on the back of a turtle or that it was a result of you know, some ravens dropping, like, we, we, if you press them on that, it would be viewed as rude to press them on whether they really believe that. Why? Because we understand that religion and spirituality is something which is just sort of personal. It gives me some peace. It gives me meaning. We have troubles in this life. We have worries about romance and, and worries about our job and worries about our bills. And, and, and there was just a thing in the paper the other day about how I think like 85% of Canadians think that the world will be worse for our children than it is now. And so we have lots of troubles. And you know what? If belief in, if having some smudging and some smoke helps you get through the day, good on you. You go for it. But it's not really real, if you know what I mean. But here's the thing, is that Christians believe Jesus is saying that this is true. Jesus is saying there is a God who is there. Jesus is saying, I really will die on the cross. I really will taste all there is to taste of death. I will really will rise from the dead. I really will defeat death. I really will defeat that which causes death. I really will ascend into heaven. And the new heaven and the new earth is a real place. And I really will return. And everything about this is a claim to be real. Claim to be true. And if Canadians understand that, they might say, whoa, okay, like, really? It's true? <laughs> My mom stopped laughing. It's true? 
at least it puts in a different thing. It's not just a matter of me insulting people. This, we believe Christians are, 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 we're called to believe this is just as true as your visa bill. It's just as true. That should have been a point, maybe. It is just as true as your visa bill or MasterCard, just to show I'm not showing any type of favorites in terms of financial providers. But some people might say, okay, George, but don't we all go to the same place? That's a very, very common thing. Like, don't we all go to the same place? And so if we're all going to the same place, who met, you know, why does it really matter if you follow the Buddhist way or you follow a native way? Or you, we're all going to the same place. But if you think about it for a second, we don't actually think we're all going to the same place. Like, if you, if we just actually give people the dignity, once again, we remember that it's not just a matter of, like some people use Prozac, some people use Jack Daniels, some people have Buddhism, and they're sort of all the same. If it helps you get through the day, as long as you don't hurt people and rob banks um, and insult people and get along with people, it doesn't really matter. If we understand we're talking about something true, if you actually listen to what people say, the fact of the matter is, is that they, they, the different ways don't actually all claim to go to the same place. You see, if you were a Buddhist or a Hindu, and you hear that after death, you go to a place where there's a room, what would they tell you? They'd say, ah, you haven't paid for all your karmic debt yet. You, you still have to keep doing things because where we'll all end up is it will be like a drop in the ocean. We lose our individuality it's like a drop in the ocean and the cycle of death and rebirth will come to an end. But if Jesus is saying that after death you go to a room and you dwell there, it means you still think there's a difference between you and the room and you still have to die and you still have to, you have to work on your karma because you, you haven't actually reached the end yet. And for the average Canadian uh, who believes that when you die you go to a better place, what the average Canadian means by a better place is that there's an invisible world, an invisible world of immaterial spirits, like spirits or minds, that's invisible because we can't see it. But if we could just sort of pierce the veil, and maybe we can do that through meditation, maybe for a moment we can do it through drugs or some type of higher consciousness, but there's this invisible immaterial world which is just sort of parallel to us and beside us. And when you die, you go there. But Jesus says, no, no, that's not what happens when you die. We're not talking about going to the same place. And you see, if, 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 if what religion and spirituality has to deal with is what is real, and if they all go to the different places, then you can't all say that the different ways are all going to equally work. It would be like going into a pharmacy and for some reason, you know, there's been a, the zombie breakout has happened, and so all the pharmacists is left and go into the pharmacy, and somebody tells you, just take whatever drug you want and as much as you want, it'll all be fine because they all make you better. And the doctors would go, no, you don't all take whatever drug, any combination, as much as you want. Some of them will kill you. And so they don't all go to the same place. And then some of you will maybe say, some people will maybe say, George, <clears throat> Uh, maybe, and here's we can put up the elephant thing. George, I think your problem is, George, the Christian problem is, George, 
that all you do is, is Jesus has just touched one small part of reality and he's extrapolated from that one small part of reality to think that he's understood the whole. It's like the classic case of the blind men touching the elephant. And some blind men touch the elephant's tusks and think that, well, God is is like a knife, or that the whole thing is like a knife. And, and others taught, touch the, 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 the trunk and they think of a snake, and others touch the leg and they think of a pillar, and, and others touch the side and think of a wall, and I'm not quite sure what's happening at the end. And at the top, they touch the ear and they touch like a fan. And, and, and somebody would say, George, that's the, the problem, is that you know, uh, you know, Buddhism touches the, t- God is so immense and they touch, Bo- they touch God in a tiny little way and so they've come up with this conclusion and Hindus have touched God in this way and they come up with this conclusion and native spirituality has touched God in this way and they come up with this conclusion and Jews and, and Muslims and Christians but the fact of the matter is you're just touching a tiny part of the reality and you don't realize that it's an elephant. And it's a very, very powerful and emotionally powerful illustration in our culture. I've had it told me, I don't know, four or five, six times a year, somebody will tell me this. But the problem is, huge problem, what can we all see? The elephant. We're not blind. The person telling me the story is saying, George, you're blind, but I'm not blind. Like, they don't say this. They're not actually meaning to be arrogant, but it's an unbelievably arrogant thing to say. And it's so common in Canadian culture that if you challenge... I remember <laughs> just a little while ago, I said to somebody that, in fact, it was an arrogant statement, and he got so mad at me. He got verbally abusive to me in the Starbucks and wouldn't talk to me for three weeks. Now, maybe I could have been a bit more gentle about it. <laughs> um, my wife will tell you truly that I don't always, I'm not always a good communicator. <laughs> I'm often a very bad communicator. But if you think about it, that's why I had Andrew put it up, is the, the, the mistake is that somebody knows that it's a whole elephant. Well, who made you God? Who made you different than every other human being? You see, the fact of the matter is, is that that actually, it, it, it's not, it doesn't actually work as an analogy at all. It has emotional power, but it actually isn't true. Another more common problem, though, to say, could you put up the the number one again, Andrew? Thanks. Uh, Jesus said unto them, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. A more common one is that when, when people hear that, they think that if, if I said that to somebody, they'd think that I was saying that they're, I'm better than them. And the problem is, is that often Christians throughout history have been very arrogant. And, and not just throughout history, that there's ways that I can be arrogant without realizing it. But the fact of the matter is, is that when I share with somebody that Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life, no one comes to the Father except through me, what I'm saying is actually that I have absolutely nothing to boast about. I've shared with you many times Spurgeon's famous line that the Christian faith is one beggar telling another beggar where to get free bread. (laughs) It's not a billionaire bread producer 
saying that if you just worked as hard as I did, etc., etc., you could make lots of bread as well. And it's not like that at all. It's very, very humbling. Jesus is saying, George, all of your ways, none of them will work. All of your truths, none of them will work. All of the things you think you do in life, none of them will work. All of the ways that you justify yourself, they don't work. None of these things work. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And I am telling you this Because I have done everything for you to know the Father. I have done everything for you to know the truth. I have done everything for you to know the life. All I'm asking you is to set down all of your, all of your ways to justify yourself and make yourself look good and make yourself look like you're special and make yourself, I, I'm just asking you to start to learn to let all of that go and receive me and I take you. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. Jesus is saying, it's all me. It's not you at all. See, the fact of the matter is that this passage and what Jesus is doing answers the deep longing of our hearts and answers a part of our cultural longing that our culture can't figure out for itself. Because, you see, what we want in our culture is, is if you think about it, what we want in our culture is we want to say, yeah, we, we want to know that there's the truth of the visa bill, and there's, there's the truth of science, that the first and second law of thermodynamics is true, and, and, and we, we, want to know, we want to know the truths that are like scientific and historical, but they're also impersonal. And we want it, we have this basic sense that there, the truth can't just be <clears throat> impersonal, that real truth has to be somehow a personal truth, that it's something that's personally known and, and somehow or another that it actually personally knows you. And, and we want to think that there must be something that's, we want more of life. We want to have hope about the future. We want things to be real. And we want to feel at home in the world. We want to feel at home in our bodies. And we want to have a sense that, that what, that where things end up as we get older is that, it, that it's a moving towards being at home. At home with who we are. At home with our bodies. Just at, at home with the, the created order. And, and our culture longs for that. But at the same time, our culture longs for that. We know that the smartest people in our culture knows that that is just something which will all come to an end and collapse. I don't know if I can recommend it as something for you to watch. Louise and I have just passed the halfway mark in watching a very interesting BBC series which is on Netflix called Black Earth Rising. And it's about, um, it seems to be about um, an attempt by Rwandans to bring uh, some of the perpetrators of the genocide to justice. And it's not only trying to bring the per- some of the perpetrators to justice, it's all about how the colonial powers, the French, the English, the Belgium, and, and maybe the Americans, and the degrees within which they've been complicit in the genocide. And I can't tell you if it's a good thing or not. I'm only five out of the eight episodes in, so maybe ask me next week when I, I, I finished it. But it's, it's so far, it's very, very, very grippingly done. And the, uh, the principal star of the show is a, is a stunning young African, uh, uh woman, um, and uh, she, she, she plays a Tutsi, but she's actually from Ghana. I looked it up on the Internet, and she's uh, from Ghana. And she's a very, very powerful actress, and it's very powerful. Uh, she plays a person who's an investigator. She herself 
uh, lost all of her family in the genocide in Rwanda. She herself was physically disfigured, although you can't see it just on her face, but she was physically disfigured, left for dead, found by this English lawyer and adopted as her own daughter and raised up in England. And part of her problem is that she doesn't know her language. She doesn't know her, her biological parents. In one level, she's English, but on the other hand, she bears in her body the scars of the genocide, and she's very, very broken up. And the powerful things in the movie, there's this very, very powerful scene. This isn't a spoiler alert. None of these are spoiler alerts, but there's this powerful, powerful scene. She's just, it's brilliantly and powerfully acted by this, by this young woman. And there's this very powerful scene where, um, she meets the sister of her adopted mother, and her sister is, the sister of the adopted mother is a devout Christian, and she's filled with unforgiveness, filled with hatred, uh, completely and utterly unattractive, and she does this long dump on this young woman, and and her response is that I long ago kicked God out of any place in my mind in my life. Because none of these things mean anything. And she is obviously the one who's very, very powerfully committed to justice, even in the midst of her pain. And all of the Christians presented in this particular thing, whether it's this devout woman or the monks, because one of the things that the, the show brings out is the complicity of some, some of the Catholic Church in the genocide. And the monks are completely and utterly unattractive and give biblical verses to justify lying. And she, the woman who has cast God out of her life, is the one who's obviously at a level of the emotion and a level of the imagination. We are drawn to her. We, we feel with her. We want to be like her, not like these dead forms and these lies and this hatred and this unforgiveness. And yet as the movie, as the, as the show progresses, there's this very, very powerful scene where she's speaking to a group of young girls at a school that she had attended when she was younger. And she shares about how all of her life she's been running and running and running from the evil which has been part of her childhood. And she's come to the conclusion that you can never outrun evil, that evil cannot be defeated, that evil comes into you and grabs you, and you can never get rid of it out of you as a person. It is just something that ultimately wins. And these poor 13-year-old girls are all sitting there with this impassioned speech of the reality This woman who has cast God out of her mind and out of her life, that evil wins. You can't outrun it. And they don't clap. There's just stunned silence. And then finally a perky headmistress starts to give a little bit of a clap and they all clap. But what I'm sharing about you this is that our culture has this deep desire that there can be hope, that things can be, that religion just isn't something that makes us feel better, but that there, there must be a way that there is true knowledge, that there is hope, that something is real, that there is something like peace, that there's something which is life-giving, and that there's something which is true. And yet at the same time that we have such a desire about this in our culture, our culture also knows that the smart people know that at the end of the day, the second law of thermodynamics wins, and everything, all life comes to an end. That at some point in time, the sun will burst into a supernova, and all life will win. That human beings all will die. And it doesn't mean how much you've built or how much you've won. You all 
die. (laughs) You're so glad you came here. You all die. Death wins. Evil wins. On this side of the grave, injustice doesn't happen. And so we're caught between our desires on one hand, and at the same time, you almost don't even want to think about the message of shows like Black Earth Rising, which, which so powerfully portrays the human condition. And in such a world, only the gospel, only Jesus, answers the end of our longings and yearnings. Jesus really did exist. Non-Christian sources, Jewish sources, Christian sources, he really did exist. He really did die on the cross. The the biographies, he really did die on the cross. He really did predict that he was going to die on the cross and he was going to rise from the dead. He really does do this not for himself but for you. He really does die. There is, in fact, good evidence that the grave actually was empty, that people actually saw his life. Only the resurrection accounts for what happens in the days and weeks and months and decades after the death and resurrection of Jesus. It really happens. It happens in history. It happens because it's true. And this thing which happens in the truth says, listen, your longings at the end of the day, you will be at home. At the end of the day, there is life. At the end of the day, Justice is done. At the end of the day, mercy is real. At the end of the day, goodness is there. At the end of the day, we are meant for life. We are meant to live under justice. We will live in a place with bodies where we are at home and we are, we can dwell. And this is guaranteed by the man who's saying this to his disciples hours before he will die on the cross, not for himself, but for you and for me. And he dies as the way and the truth and the life. And no one comes to the Father but through him. And he does not say this to exclude, but to wound. You desire truth. There is personal truth. There is the personal God. I am God. God is is forever the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. He is a personal God who desires not only to be known as real, but to be known in a personal way and to come into you and to know you in a deep and personal way and to see everything there is within you and love you so much that he would provide the way by which you can be made right with God and know truth and know the way and know life. Only the gospel deals with the longings of our hearts in a way that the world cannot provide an answer. So I just want to encourage you. I know emotionally and imaginatively it is very hard. Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Andrew, if you could put up just, and just listen to these other promises that will go with you, that go with it. Remember, he's already said about home. In verse 18, I will not abandon you as orphans. I will come to you. The next point, verse 23, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. He will keep the word of John 14, 6. And my father will love him. And we will come to him and make our home with him. The next point. Verse 16 and 17, and I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, the spirit of truth. And this word helper referring to the Holy Spirit is also known as advocate. He advocates for you. He counsels you. He gives you wisdom and insight. I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, the spirit of truth. And the next point, the final point, peace I leave with you. Verse 27, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. 
Because the world, what does the world give to you? The world gives you, you can have an imaginary thing that's personal, or you can have Jack Daniels <laughs> or Prozac. But at the end of the day, you're still going to die. And human life is lived by trying to forget those inconvenient truths. And Jesus says, peace I live with you, leave with you, my peace I give you, not as the world gives, do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled or lacking in courage. Do you all please stand? <clears throat> for those of us who are in Christ, this text is a call for us to cry out for the courage to fully embrace the hope of John 14:6 that Jesus said I am the way and the truth and the life no one comes to the father except through me and it's a time to call out to God that he would grant us the courage that we would grow in a humble trusting knowing walking in the truth of who Jesus is and what he does for us and what he says and if you are here and you've not yet given your life then it is a time to cry out to God that you might have the courage the courage to embrace and to receive Jesus who is the way and the truth and the life who will bring you to the Father into a room where you will dwell with all eternity in a dwelling place, not just in a room, but in a dwelling place where you are at home and you will know the peace of Jesus as it starts to grow within you. And there is no better time than now to call out to Jesus who will give you the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Uh, Jesus, you know our hearts. You know how many of us are troubled by different things. And um, we, we, get, we, thank, we thank you, Jesus, that you know our hearts. You know that we get troubled. And you know that sometimes we just need courage. And we ask, Lord, that you would pour the Holy Spirit deep within us and help us to grow as people of courage. People with the courage to grow in a humble, trusting, walking, knowing, believing, hoping, resting in the truth that you, Jesus, are the way. You, Jesus, are the truth. You, Jesus, are the life that you bring us to the Father and you make your home within us. And all God's people said, Amen.